it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Tuesday, February 8th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome in to the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host. Glad to have you here every 3 to 6 p.m. every weekday. That's 3 to 6 Eastern, I should say, Monday through Friday, and around the clock, on demand for free on the podcast. GuyBensonShow.com is our website, all the ways to listen live. You can also check out our great affiliates around the country. If you can't listen as we air, there is that podcast, on demand, free of charge, GuyBensonShow.com. Programming note, I'll be on special report tonight. The panel with Brett Baer and friends. I think I saw Molly Hemingway will be on the panel as well. Looking forward to that. Usually right around 6.35, 6.40 p.m. Eastern for the panel, Fox News Channel. On the radio side, here's the lineup. Congressman Kevin Brady, Republican of Texas. He'll be here in the next hour. As will K.T. McFarland, longtime foreign policy Republican aide who has served in, I believe, four presidential administrations, including most recently the Trump administration. We'll talk to her about Russia, Ukraine, China, and the Western alliances that are going to be needed to push back against a growing partnership between China and Russia. I saw KT recently tweeted about that, and I want to get her thoughts when she joins us later. In our final hour, Janice Dean, our colleague, our friend, will be here, yes, talking a bit about the weather. She's senior meteorologist at Fox, but also about the now-threatened political comeback of one Andrew Cuomo, the disgraced, resigned former governor of New York. I would imagine Janice might have a few thoughts on that one, and we will put the issue to her when she is here. That's in the final hour of today's show, right after 5 p.m. Eastern. Fox News alert as we begin. Stats, 76.7 million cases of COVID in the United States. That's the official cumulative case count in this country it is not even close to accurate tens of millions more cases have actually occurred these are the ones that have been officially logged compared to two weeks ago cases are down 62 percent so the plummet that we've been talking about continues and it keeps getting steeper which is obviously very good news the death toll which is catching up with that tragically lagging indicator once again it's grown And proportionally, in terms of percentage, it's up over two weeks ago. Now, 904,144 Americans have died with or of COVID over the last two years. Taking a look at Wall Street right now, the markets are up. The Dow ahead 230 points right now, trading at 35,321, and we have just about 51 minutes to go until the closing bell. We'll see if the Dow remains in the green, and we'll bring you that update when we open our next hour. Now, there's a lot to get to on COVID and mask battles and some of the major shifts going on among 
Democratic governors. In the last, what, 24 hours, we have now seen five blue state governors come out and announce either an imminent or eventual rescission or suspension of indoor mask mandates statewide, including, in most cases, among school children, which is very good if terribly belated news. We talked about New Jersey yesterday, Delaware as well, Connecticut got on board, then we saw Oregon join the party. That's a big reversal. They had just gone to their permanent mask mandate. I guess the memo went out, and I have some theories on that. I'm only half joking. California also making the announcement, although for now they haven't extended it to school kids because, of course, they haven't. They need to get buy-in from their bosses in the teachers' union. But it looks like that's the direction that they want to move. And the timing's interesting. Right? Within days of Gavin Newsom, the governor out there in California, being photographed repeatedly at that football game indoors without a mask on, it just seems like the hypocrisy meter has been off the charts and the resentment of it has increased and ratcheted up. And it's not just among conservatives anymore. It's much more widespread than Stacey Abrams did her truly devastating photo op as the only unmasked person in the whole room filled with masked kids, little kids. She's sitting there with a giant smile on her face with all these kids have to wear masks. That was so damaging. We talked about it yesterday. I really do believe that some of these photographs, just monuments to hypocrisy, hastened the cascade, the deluge of blue state governors saying, well, the science has changed. So now it's time to reverse course on some of the masking. I will return to that theme in a second. And just spoiler alert, the science has not changed. The science on school masking and masking children has not changed. We have been beating this drum for months. Some of you are probably tired of me talking about it. I'm not going to stop talking about it until these kids are liberated from this insane anti-science masking regime. It's nuts. It's harmful. It does no good based on the actual data. And it's not a little bit of data. It's a ton of data from all around the world. And not just experiments, but lived experience. Across the pond, here in the United States, over and over and over again, The science has not changed. Yes, Omicron has come and largely gone. Cases are way down nationwide. That's what they're going to sort of use as their fig leaf. Oh, the science has changed. The science hasn't changed. The politics have changed. Let me repeat that. The science on the efficacy of masking children in schools to prevent transmission among students has not changed one iota in more than a year. The politics of this have changed. And I think a lot of Democrats recognize if they continue on this forever COVID trajectory with kids as their pawns in this culture war, they are going to get obliterated at the polls in November. And some of them have the sense Finally, and they don't get a bunch of applause for this. They're not being driven by data or science. They're not heroes. They are recognizing that they can no longer go with the 
pandemic panic porn stuff. It worked for them politically for a while. It certainly helped Joe Biden in 2020. It's not working anymore. Now it's a liability. So the politics are requiring them to pretend that the science is different and to change and to make the shift. Is it good for the kids that the politics finally align with their interests? Yeah, finally. Does it make what these politicians are doing in terms of their calculus any less cynical or self-interested? Absolutely not. Imagine being one of these Democrats, for example, like at the White House, where they're insisting, no, we're, we're sticking with the CDC guidance, uh, they should be wearing the masks in schools. Imagine being so far behind the curve that a bunch of other Democrats have already realized the jig is up. We can't get away with this anymore. We're going to get hammered. We are pulling the ripcord. We're done with this stuff. And there's a lot of people still stuck, right? There's, there's a bunch of you know, people who thrive on the fear, people who are addicted to the control, people who are downright neurotic and are basically part of a cult at this point. There's going to be pushback from them, but they still control a lot of things in this country. And so I don't know if the Democrats are going to be able to as seamlessly extricate themselves from this predicament that they've created for themselves by feeding into this non-data-driven fear about children and COVID. You can't just unprogram a bunch of people at the drop of a hat. They're going to try, and I think what we're seeing you know, yesterday with the floodgates opening, it's the first step in that direction. Because they just looked around, they said, we cannot let the Republicans take the ball of normalcy and sprint away with it because they will leave us in the dust. So some at least self-aware Democrats are like, okay, guys, we can't do this anymore. Which brings me to a wonderful piece of breaking news. In fact, I will call for a Fox News alert here on this one. We have been telling you about the situation in Virginia and the fight involving Governor Glenn Youngkin, who's been of course, newly elected, newly installed by the voters in Virginia. He took office in mid-January. Shortly thereafter, he signed an executive order that made masks optional in schools. Not banning masks, just saying parents get to decide if their kids wear masks or not while in school. And of course you had, what was it, half a dozen deep blue area school districts. They decided, because they were sort of reflexively going back to their Trump instincts, let's be the resistance. We're going to fight for fake science and call it science and safety or whatever. We're going to sue the governor. We're not going to comply. We're going to launch these lawsuits, and there's a big legal fight brewing, pitting Governor Yunkin against these school districts. And you know how the media covered it. The blue area school districts were the heroes standing up for the kids in the science against this, uh, you know, anti-science, anti-Diluvian monster, Glenn Youngkin. Except Youngkin campaigned on this, and he won. So he was sensing where public opinion was going. He also was looking at the data and the actual science, like, for example, Ron DeSantis has been doing all along. In Florida, I think part of the reason that you're going to see still a ton of resistance, people getting dragged, kicking and screaming to unmasking kids, is because fundamentally they don't want to admit that DeSantis was right. That's why they kept schools closed for a year. They didn't want to admit that Trump was right. 
Trump correctly said it's time to reopen schools, and a bunch of politicized, broken brain idiots, tribal psychos, decided that because Trump said we should reopen the schools, even though the data shows that we should and it's safe to do around the country and around the world, we're not going to do it because Trump. So they put a ton of harm on these kids, needlessly, for more than a year to resist Trump. And now it's the mass stuff, and they're resisting DeSantis, and in this case, Yunkin in Virginia. All right, so that's, that's sort of the, uh, the buildup here. That's the background to this whole story. The other day, we played the clip on Friday. Yunkin was at an event in Alexandria, very, very liberal place, very democratic city in Northern Virginia, and he was doing some sort of a roundtable at a grocery store talking about the costs of things going up and inflation and helping families, and I guess he was pushing uh, maybe some, some tax relief, that kind of thing. And at one point, he wrapped up and he went to go check out. He was at the line, and he was not wearing a mask, as he was not required to. There's no indoor mask mandate. That was, in fact, taken out by the previous governor, the Democratic governor, who forced the masking of kids to continue, of course, because that was the sort of the dogmatic, religious thing that the left was doing. But for adults, the indoor mask mandate in Virginia was gone. Yunkin was making a choice not to wear his mask, and he was yelled at by this supermarket Karen. In case you missed it, here's what she said in Cut 21. Governor, where's your mask? He's, well, we're, we're, all, we're all making choices. Yeah, look, look around you, Governor. You're in Alexandria. Yeah. Read the room, buddy. Uh, He's my governor. Yeah, so she says, read the room, buddy, and that became a hashtag, and all these super online, politics-addicted lefty trolls were all excited about this. I wouldn't be surprised if someone got a Read the Room Buddy tattoo, because that's what they do. Print up the T-shirts. Nevertheless, she persisted. Read the Room Buddy, whatever the current sort of totem of resistance is. They all just go crazy for it. They can't get enough of it. So all these virtual high fives on the left, yeah, you tell them. This woman is my spirit animal. Although I'm sure that that is... Somehow politically incorrect, but this is, they were all very excited about this one. Make her the governor. Well, this has been a ramp up to the breaking news that I promised. There is a state senator in Virginia, because it's 21-19 Democrat majority in the state Senate. Republicans have the House of Delegates, barely. That was a big upset, but they won it back. They hold the constitutional statewide offices, governor, lieutenant governor, uh, attorney general, but they are one vote short in the Virginia State Senate. But there's like a a Joe Manchin type guy in Virginia who is a moderate, maverick-style Democratic senator who has had it up to here with the mask mandates, especially for kids in schools. And he's been sort of on a rampage about it. He's put out memos. He's put out statements. And he was threatening, we told you about this, to jump over to the Republican side on this issue and vote with the Republicans, which would make it 2020, and Winsome Sears, the lieutenant governor, would come in and break the tie, a vote on legislation that would require parents to have a choice on masking. Make the mask-optional executive order from Yunkin now the law passed by the legislature as well. Because part of the lawsuit is saying, oh, well, Yunkin can't do this because a law in Virginia says that he doesn't have the power and that they have to follow CDC. So this senator is saying, fine. That's fine. 
Let's rewrite the law. I voted for the last one. Let's rewrite it, and we're going to make this the new law. That was his threat. Was he going to follow through? He put out another letter yesterday. Really good stuff. Really powerful stuff going after one of these blue counties in the school system. And today, minutes ago, he introduced his bill to change the law and to require parental choice on masking. And guess what? The vote wasn't 20 to 20, tied and broken by the lieutenant governor, a Republican. It ended up being a blowout, 29 to 9, a bipartisan blowout in favor of changing the law to require parental choice on masking in schools in Virginia. That is a huge victory for the kids of Virginia. It's a blow to these school districts and their idiotic you know, resistance theater, harming kids in the process. It's a big win for Governor Glenn Youngkin in Virginia and a bipartisan one at that. And, you know, maybe, just maybe, Supermarket Karen, Governor Glenn Youngkin has been reading the room a lot better than you have. How about that? The Guy Benson Show is just revving up, just getting started. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. If you maybe sensed at the end of the last segment that I was feeling satisfied by this victory in Virginia, this huge bipartisan victory to hand masking decisions for children in schools back to parents in a blow to the neurotic leftists who've been fighting Yunkin and all these people, uh, you're right. It is very satisfying. And Yunkin understands it. He's tweeted out saying it's a big victory for the children of Virginia, a bipartisan achievement. He said he will eagerly sign the bill as soon as it gets to his desk, because I think it has to go through the whole process. But he'll sign it. Of course he will. This is a big, big political win for him that's also great on the merits. You know, this would be a great thing for him to tout, this bipartisan victory for science and for children, when he gives a speech in front of a packed room in the House of Delegates in his response to the State of the Union address as the Republican response. That was my proposal. I've been laying it out and plugging it for a while. This is yet another, I would say, feather in his cap and a reason to do it. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. There was a, and is a time and place for pandemic restrictions, but when they were put in, it was always with the understanding that they would be removed as soon as we can. And in this case, circumstances have changed. Case counts are declining. Also, the science has changed. It's the Guy Benson Show. Welcome back. That was Dr. Liana Wen, one of the CNN doctors, saying, hey, look, the science has changed. 
they're talking about all these Democratic governors all of a sudden and some Democratic members of Congress and other folks suddenly seeing the light on masking in schools and mask mandates generally. And there's this whole rapid-fire flurry of them yesterday. It's like there was a memorandum that went out or some sort of conference call. Like, hey, guys, we're getting crushed on this issue. Public opinion has moved. We need to move. The fact that some of them are saying we'll do it in a month or we'll do it in two months, I think that's crazy. But the focus right now for me is that last bit of that clip from the doctor saying the science has changed. And as I said at the top, with all due respect... The science has not changed. I'm not a doctor. I'm not an expert, but I could get a doctor on here, as we have all the time, to back me up. The science has not changed. In fact, I was looking back within my archive of what I've written at townhall.com over the last year. I have been hammering away on this point, citing data, citing science, citing real-world outcomes in the United States, in the United Kingdom, in Europe looking at what the European Union CDC has recommended and not recommended, what the experts in the UK have done, how private schools without masks have, how they've fared, how schools in states without mask mandates have fared. The science, I will has not changed on this issue. Broader community case counts are way down from Omicron. No thanks to mask mandates, by the way. And we've demonstrated that over and over again. We talked about the comparison of trajectories of these states during, let's say, December through now. They were identical. I saw just the other day a comparison. It was Florida, California, New York, and Texas. Two of those states had mask mandates. Two of them did not. The state that had the highest peak in Omicron was New York, where there was a mask mandate. Texas was the best performing of those four states without a mask mandate. Florida did better than New York, and in some ways better than California. Florida, no mask mandate. California, mask mandate. There was no point to the mask mandates. They didn't work. They had no effect on the Omicron surge and then dropping off. That's the reality based on the data, but it's especially true among kids in schools. We talked about the example out of Colorado. Three school districts, all clustered right next to each other, two put in a mandate, one did not, and their case count, their curve, was all exactly the same. And as it turned out, the one that had the lowest peak, the fewest cases per capita, was the district without a mask mandate. Kids are at extremely low risk of severe COVID, thank God. They are at Almost zero risk of dying from COVID, thank God. They're at much greater risk of dying from other things. Still tiny risk, but greater risk than COVID. Dying of other things that we don't restrict or turn their lives upside down in response to those things. We have been making this point, this whole array of points, over and over again. I saw, I was looking at one piece, for example, that I wrote before the current school year started, back in August, making the case against school mask mandates. Based on data, not just me spouting off and being like, hey, here's my take as some guy on the radio. Hey, you don't have to trust me. Hopefully, many of you do believe that I'm trustworthy and a credible person. But if you think I'm just some schlub, 
some right winger out there who's uh, you know yelling into a microphone every day. Fine, if that's how you view me, that's fine. But I show my work. I cite data. And to pretend now in what February what was it yesterday, February seventh of the year of our Lord twenty twenty two, suddenly the science has changed on kids and masking in schools. Absolutely hell no. That's not true. What has changed, as I note, is the politics. And I guess when you have science with an R next to it, it's bad and not to be trusted. Science with a D next to it, that's good science. That might be a bit of an oversimplification, but not much of one. Those are the cues that our media take. Now, I want to help tease out this point a little further. This was an exchange that occurred on CNN, and I give credit to Jake Tapper over there. And Tapper, by the way, has been doing some good reporting on the Olympics and the genocide and the abuses of communist China, like making a real point of doing that. I think that is laudable. And I also think he asked a good question. So he had Phil Murphy on, the governor of New Jersey. So Murphy was kind of the first guy to really come out and say, blue state governor, we're getting rid of the school mask mandates a month from now, which is, which is stupid. But we're getting rid of the school mask mandates. Incidentally, just because they're getting rid of the statewide mandates in some of these places doesn't mean that some of these hardcore blue communities are going to drop the mandates. Right? These governors aren't saying you must implement choice, which is what Youngkin has done in Virginia now, and he's now done it on a bipartisan level. I think that Republicans should be introducing those types of bills in every single state where masking mandates for kids still exist. Because it splintered the Democrats almost exactly in half in the Virginia State Senate. Republicans are unified. It's good policy. It's good politics. It's good for the kids. It's good science. So that's what just happened in Virginia, which is why I'm giving Youngkin so much credit. He's the new governor. He has already been furiously opposed on this, and now he's winning. But I don't want to lose sight of the governors who were right on this long before, who've been in office, who've been taking these slings and arrows for more than a year, from DeSantis in Florida on down to others. They also deserve credit. But Murphy now is coming around and says, oh, the, the science has changed. It's now suddenly safe for the kids to go back into schools. Although, as I pointed out, they're not doing what some of these Republican governors have done. They're saying it's no longer a top-down mask mandate from the state, but communities can do what they want. And some of these neurotic people in these communities, you're going to have like preening local officials and paranoid parents who are going to try to drag the masking of children on for as long as they possibly can. So the fight isn't going to be over. There's going to be local battles on this stuff in places like New Jersey, right, and these other blue states that are simply dropping the mandate because I think they want to wash their hands. The governor's like, look, this is not going to play politically well for me anymore. I'm washing my hands of it so I can say we've moved on from the statewide mandates and then we can sort of punt this decision down to the lower level. And good luck if you're a kid in one of those communities filled with people who are just totally gripped with COVID fear based on irrationality and a lack of science. But coming back to this CNN interview, Governor Murphy was asked by Jake Tapper, do you have evidence that supports 
the notion, your assertion, that the mask requirements in schools actually worked, that they were actually a smart, successful policy compared to other places that didn't have those mandates. I want you to listen to the answer slash non-answer from Governor Murphy, starting in cut four. There's no question that masking in our schools since the beginning of the school year uh, has been a very uh, smart public health step. I think we've had just over 2,600 cases of students uh, with uh, COVID positive since the beginning of the school year. That's out of 1.4 million kids. Uh, So it's a pretty stark uh, piece of evidence, I think, that this has absolutely worked. But you got to meet the moment. You try always to not undershoot the moment and put lives at risk or overshoot the moment and add more stress and mental health challenges to the system. And we think this plan of a month notice uh, is going to get that as right as we can. Okay, Uh, so a couple things there. He says it absolutely worked, the school mask requirements. He said it was a very smart public health step. He said it meets the moment. It didn't overshoot the moment, which is hilarious. It abs- New Jersey and states like New Jersey have been overshooting this moment radically and dramatically for more than a year. And now he's saying, like, oh, it's also very smart. How sophisticated and clever of us to have a month's notice. We're going to get rid of this in, you know, what, March 7th. What's that magic number? happens to be my birthday, March 7th. What's, what's special about March 7th that then, oh, the science at that point will allow, we believe that uh, the, the safety will enter a new dawn. I mean, it just, it's, it's made up. The science has not changed. The delay is political. The delay has been political. The further delay is political. And the question from Tapper was, do you have evidence that it actually did work? You can keep asserting this. You can dissemble and say, well, look at these stats in New Jersey. I'm just going to talk about New Jersey. The question was, do you have evidence that your school masking requirement, forcibly putting face coverings on children, actually served their health interests compared to other places that did not do that to children? and the outcomes in those places. So Tapper tries again, cut five. Have you seen data that definitively proves that these mask mandates uh, have worked? Uh, I mean, the numbers you just presented are impressive, but are they different from the numbers in states where they didn't have mask mandates? Yeah, again, I know Jersey Jake the best, but I'm, I'm highly confident, and I'm sure our health officials uh, will, will, could say it definitively. There's no question They've worked. There's no question getting vaccinated, getting boosted and wearing masks indoors have all been positive health, public health steps compared to the absence of any of those things in the alternative. Nope. So he doesn't have an answer. He's asked about the comparison because saying, oh, look what we've done in New Jersey. This has worked out well. Okay, has it worked out well compared to Texas or any other state that didn't have these mandates? And Murphy's like, well, I only know New Jersey. So he avoids the question there. But then he just says, just basically, trust my authority. I'm highly confident there's no question this worked. In fact, there is, I would argue, no question that it didn't work based on the actual data. There is no statistical difference 
on this stuff between mask mandate schools and non-mask mandate schools. The UK did a huge study on this, reported by the BBC. No statistical difference. In some cases, the schools without mask mandates did better. In others, not. But in the aggregate, it made no difference. And schools were among the safest places you can be in our society because kids are overwhelmingly safe from this virus. That's the reality. But here's a guy like Murphy who wants all this credit. Oh, we're not undershooting. We're not overshooting. we got Goldilocks over here. This is just right. Magically, right now, when public opinion is shifting and a bunch of my fellow Democratic politicians keep getting caught as hypocrites violating their own rules, the magical moment has arrived upon us. And it is March the 7th. That is what the new science says. It's just insulting. And good for Tapper for following up, saying, no, the question is, do you have specific evidence? And the answer was, no, I don't have all that, but I'm very confident, and there's no question it was right. And then notice he pivoted to vaccines and booster shots. And by the way, I'm very pro-vaccine. I'm fully vaccinated. I'm very pro-booster shots, if you're eligible, because I think natural immunity matters a lot arguably significantly more than getting vaccinated. I am for the vaccines, and I am for people getting boosted. I think kids are a different story on that front. But masking, especially of children for eight hours a day in schools, that is not even close to the same universe, data-wise, as the evidence for getting vaxxed. There is powerful scientific evidence that getting vaccinated reduces drastically your chances of going to the hospital or dying from COVID. That's a really good argument based on science. There is no, by contrast, no solid evidence that masking kids for hours on end in schools has any difference at all. And in fact, there's quite a bit of evidence emerging that it's harmful to kids. That, I think, that back and forth really, really underscores how the people who have been masked dead-enders for so long, even those who are finally trying to get out of it and like, oh, God, let me get off this highway. Where's the exit? And just like like pulling across, screeching across four lanes of traffic to get on that exit ramp. I got to get out of here. This is not going to work out well politically. We've got to stop this on the kids, not necessarily for the sake of the kids, but for the sake of our political asses. They have had so little evidence to back up their claims. So they dissemble and they assert. And they expect that people will just say, okay. I feel like we've been shouting into the ether now for well over half a year on the air about this in my writing at townhall.com. And public opinion has now caught up so much to this that even a guy like Phil Murphy in New Jersey, who you just heard, and these other... Democratic governors, they're finally realizing they can't do it anymore. Now, someone who hasn't gotten the memo yet about her party's new talking point is the slow-witted, thuggish union boss, Randy Weingarten, who was on MSNBC. Here's her metric for taking masks off kids. She's childless herself, but she wants to own your children. Cut 20. I am in favor of an off-ramp on masks. Yeah, right. uh-huh. The real issue becomes, are, is, the, is, is the spread 
low enough so that there's no dissemination or transmission in schools. And it's not the teachers transmitting to kids. No transmission dissemination in schools. So zero COVID. That is nuts. That's not an off-ramp. That's a non-existent off-ramp, which is what we heard actually from the official in Maryland saying it's a, an off-ramp would be zero COVID. That'll never happen, so we're going to have these kids in masks forever. That's the Randy Weingarten position for now. Someone will get her the new talking points at some point along the way, but she is going to be one of the last dead-enders. Just give her a few weeks or a few months. She's a little slow. The Guy Benson Show continues next. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. One more thought on this train before we move on in the next hour. I had forgotten about this, but I saw it on Twitter today. A guy who goes by political math on Twitter posted a link to a story about a little flare-up in the child-masking COVID wars from the beginning of this academic year, August of this academic current academic year, where a number of Republican states had said they were not going to force kids to wear masks in schools. The Education Department, the Biden administration, launched civil rights investigations into these states to see if the civil rights of these kids are being violated by these Republican governors. Are we going to get those civil rights probes from Biden into New Jersey and Delaware and Oregon and Connecticut? Oh, I don't think so. It's a rhetorical question. Politicized science all the way down. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a brand new hour on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for being here. 3 to 6 Eastern, every weekday, around the clock, on demand for free, GuyBensonShow.com. We've got the podcast right there, also at FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be on the panel tonight with Brett Baer for Special Report, talking about the news of the day. Looking forward to that. See you around 640 Eastern on Fox News Channel. Fox News alert as we kick off the middle hour. Big day on Wall Street. The Dow closes up 371 points today, ending in the green at 35,462. Joining me now is Congressman Kevin Brady from Texas 8. He is the ranking Republican on the House Ways and Means Committee. And Congressman, welcome back. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I want to start with Friday's jobs report, which was a really good one. I know that the projections from experts were much lower. In fact, there was one estimate that was suggesting that we could see jobs fall last month. But the report came in, and it was a big job growth month. And I just wonder what you make of that. I see, of course, President Biden came out to take a a victory lap, which I understand. Of course, he'd do that politically. I just wonder, is he sort of missing, or I can't admit, maybe I should say, the bigger picture that to the extent that the economy is growing and jobs are being added to this economy, it is overwhelmingly red states and Republican governors and Republican-led states that are driving that growth. 
that's what the the data actually shows. He spends a lot of his time and energy attacking guys like your governor, for example, Greg Abbott, when, as I've said before on this show, the data suggests he should be thanking Republican governors, would be in a lot worse shape if not for the uh, you know growing and increasingly recovered economies in red states. Yeah, there's no question about it. Uh, Republican governors, you know, who opened up early, who ended those very lavish unemployment benefits early, have seen the strongest job growth, seen the lowest unemployment. And frankly, they're the reasons why the numbers have started to bounce back. But one thing I point out is that sort of of the headline number Friday was a, a bit of a shocker. I think most people thought, okay, now that President Biden's barriers to work, like the child tax credit that that uh, doesn't uh, require you to work anymore, that people are beginning to reconnect to their jobs, which I think is a, a good thing. But in digging through the data since, since uh, Friday, experts have warned that when you remove population revisions, which is what the Labor Department does, they just add the new census data at the beginning of every year. So it rejiggers everything in the statistics. But if you actually remove those, which are just technical changes, job growth, it turns out, did actually fall by 272,000 jobs, and the number of unemployed rose. The same thing for the percentage of Americans in the workforce. If you take out just that once-a-year quirk, turns out, you know, it was flat as well. And so, huh. so with that, said, let me ask you that because you just yeah. explained that technicality, and there might be some people saying, "Okay, here's here's this Republican congressman going on this conservative show." to poo-poo a huge jobs report that the Democratic president was excited about, and he's trying to explain it away like, oh, it's not really what it seems. That sounds a little conspiratorial. If what you're (laughs) saying is right, would that maybe show up in the February jobs report? It it actually shows up in the January one. And so fair question happens every year, and it's it's just a a, – quirk of the fact that we continue to grow as a nation. And so in January of each year, sort of all the denominators and nominators sort of change a bit because we well, have I guess I guess my America. question, Congressman, and I could have phrased it better, was would that once a year January phenomenon wear off and would we have a better picture if it is indeed bleaker, would that bleaker picture show up in the February jobs report? So sort of, it's sort of like Apples to apples, but every new year is a different set of apples, and so you can't compare it exactly. But here's what we know for certain. There are a whole lot of red flags facing this economy, including raging inflation. The president still, his his uh, jobs deficit, which is the gap between what he promised and delivered, is rose again to 1.2 million jobs short. And as you know, we have a big, huge worker shortage that's really driving up inflation and keeping the economy held back. And so, look, you, you always you want a stronger economy. We're all rooting for it. Uh, I don't think that that one month number, frankly, was what we needed to do that. And uh, I still think we've got these looming tax increases still uh, hanging over the heads of small businesses and main street job creators. That's a worry as well. There's this competitiveness bill, meanwhile, that Democrats are now pushing. I've seen a number of Republican leaders saying that it's a non-starter for various reasons. I have not followed that controversy closely, so please educate me and my audience. What is the bill proposed, and what are they, what are they trying to get passed, so, and what are some of the objections to it? 
Yes, what what Democrats are doing is proposing to spend about a $300 billion more uh, supposedly to compete with China. But when you dig deeper into it, it is much like the other socialist programs. A lot of the labor union uh, giveaways, uh, a bunch of trade barriers, frankly, that make it hard for us to compete. And as I point out, look, at the, the end of the day, you know, when you're confronting China, so the key questions are, does this hold China accountable for their predatory trade practices? No, it doesn't. Does it build off of President Trump's phase one agreement that began to change the behavior of uh, China as far as stealing our intellectual property and in uh, technologies? No. And then does it really uh, confront China's aggressiveness on trade agreements around the world, which they are super aggressive right now? And the answer is no. In fact, the Biden administration's sitting on the sidelines while China and Japan and Russia and others are divvying up the world's customers for their farmers and manufacturers and workers. So I think it, um, and the other thing too, I, I really worry, it gives government more control uh, over the economy and subsidizes, as always, sort of the special interests. So I don't think it, very partisan bill in contrast to the Senate that actually had a China bill that uh, got 91 votes was much more balanced. So we'll see if Nancy Pelosi has inter- any interest. Well, why not just pass that? If it got 91 votes in the Senate, which is, I will remind everyone, controlled by Democrats right yeah. now, why not pass that? What's the point of another you know, stupid political fight? I feel like the Democrats might actually want to rack up some wins here to point you would to something. Think, you would think, and at least, why not start with that bill? You know, if that got that much support, why don't you begin with it? You can make changes in the House. We get that. Different bodies have different views. But, yeah, they just they, it was more of the just go at your alone, stick it full of ideological stuff, and push it through, you know, with no Republican support. So where it goes from here is anyone's guess. Yeah, so more messaging bills. I mean, the thing is, yeah. they've, they've been trying that, and it hasn't been working. It hasn't. They've done, they've done is- messaging bills on everything, and they've achieved nothing. The one thing they achieved was the $1.9 trillion so-called COVID relief bill that got us a bunch of excuses for schools closing again and yep. testing shortages that, you know, I don't know if you've been hearing this, Congressman, but remember, oh, you get your free tests and the whole website's working perfectly and you just put in your household and they'll send. There are a lot of people all over social media saying, I put in my request weeks ago, I still haven't gotten my tests, and the Omicron surge is gone. These tests are going to arrive when, when the surge is gone. I mean, what did we get for that $1.9 trillion? That was their big accomplishment. It would seem like they would want to at least have something they could you know, put up there and, and prop up and say, hey, look, an achievement from the Democratic Congress and the Democratic president, and this is us getting you know, tougher on China on a bipartisan basis. It seems like a kind of easy W for them to take. But I get, you know, Pelosi, she says she's a master legislator. I guess she has other plans here. Look, back home uh, to your point, look, people call our office. They can't get tests. They can't get their tax return. Inflation continues to to just hammer uh, their their household budgets. And our small businesses can't find workers. And Democrats in Congress apparently could care less about any of that because, as you said, they're just going along with messaging bills. There's some real problems here. And I will tell you, Republicans will work with Democrats on real solutions to those issues. But at least in the House, it is one party rule and just go it alone. Meanwhile, I know you're always on guard about the IRS and you've been warning about 
some provisions under which the IRS could be targeting not the super rich, which is what they always talk about. Oh, we're going to make them pay their fair share. Now, this would be low middle class, working class people with the IRS getting more aggressive. What's that concern? Yeah. So, as you know, the the IRS, of course, uh, has this $16 million million tax return backlog that they didn't prepare for and didn't spend any money on. They're continuing to push this bank surveillance scheme and the 80,000 new IRS auditors. But but I think what people don't understand is that this uh, surveillance and reporting of your Venmo or other third-party apps that require you to report the IRS those transactions, those land principally on low- and middle-income earners, uh, that reporting requirement, just as we predicted it would if they did it uh, in your private or business um, bank accounts. And, And now, as you know, the IRS has been considering, but as of yesterday, began to back away from a uh, a uh, sort of an integrity anti-fraud issue that required people to use their facial recognition to access their tax returns or their child tax credits. So, and you know, here's an agency that frankly can't protect your your private tax returns, much less your biometric or facial uh, uh, elements. Yeah, so that's that's sort of perhaps a red flag there. I know you've been following that. Kevin Brady, Republican Congressman of Texas, the ranking Republican on the influential House Ways and Means Committee. Congressman, always appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Guy. Take care. Stepping aside, coming right back. Guy Benson Show continues after this. I'm Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show. Quick update on the Winter Olympics. We talked a lot about it yesterday, and I explained part of the reason why I'm not watching this year. And it's just, you know, genocide regime host... I can't do it. And I'm not alone. NBC reports that it had a total audience, including streaming, for the first Saturday of the Winter Olympics, 13.6 million viewers. Four years ago for the 2018 Games, it was more than 10 million higher. 24.2 million tuned in. So that is a decrease, that is an erosion of 44% of the audience. And there might be a number of different reasons for that, but I imagine a big one is that the Chinese Communist Party getting to host this thing is offensive enough to enough people that they're saying, no, thank you, this time around. 44% drop on the first Saturday. That is not good news for NBC. It's not good news for their advertisers, and what a shame that is. All these wonderful, upstanding Olympic sponsors of the genocide games who don't want to comment on the genocide because they value Chinese dollars. I wonder if maybe some of them will get a message out of this. I don't know. Well, as of earlier today, the medal count, it's still very, very early. Team USA is not in pole position, at least not yet. The most medals have been won so far by the Russians. They've got 10. We've got five. Sweden is in first place on gold medals with four. U.S. has no gold medals. Again, this was at least uh, this afternoon, last time I checked, with four silvers and one bronze. So five total medals, which would be a tie with Germany, a tie with the Chinese. So a long ways to go. I am rooting very much for Team USA. I'm just not watching. So hopefully Team USA 
will step it up and keep the medals rolling and get some golds and then pull ahead. That is the overall picture here. That's the goal. Have you seen, incidentally, photos of this one is like a ski jump location in Beijing or the surrounding area where you've got this giant ski jump man-made hill with synthetic fake snow and it's surrounded by what appears to be a desolate nuclear plant and surrounding area. I mean, to, to call it not picturesque is an understatement. So those photos have gone viral. At first, I thought it was fake. Like, this has got to be Photoshopped or something. No, that's, that's just where they set up this event for the Beijing Games. Hideous. Absolutely gross. And then there was the photo posted by one of the Olympic athletes, because they're complaining about their food. They're complaining about feeling isolated, their accommodations. There's a lot of unhappy people. And one athlete posted a photograph of a meal, which was in this styrofoam container, and it did not look terribly appetizing. And the allegation was that she had had this exact same meal every single day for every meal. It's like they just hand you the same thing, and it looks gross. Now, whether that's a fluke, whether there's a little bit more variety out there for other athletes, I don't know. I haven't been following it that closely but it did have some major vibes of the Fire Festival. Remember that? There are, I think, a few documentaries made about it. This giant flop of a music festival put on by grifters who hyped this big thing, and it's going to be amazing, and five-star event. And then for all the sort of uh, young, rich kids who spent a bunch of money to go to the Fire Festival, which was promoted by all these celebrities... The reality of what happened was dramatically different than what was promised. And it turned into sort of a historic debacle, a total nightmare. If you're an event planner, it is your nightmare come to life. And it was really actually a fraud. They knew that they weren't going to deliver on their promise, and they kept bluffing their way forward. People ended up going to jail. Fascinating. Fascinating story. I mean, you couldn't pay me to go on one of those things, even if it was everything it was supposed to be. But it looked hellish. And the way that the fire Festival was sort of exposed publicly for being a fraud was one person took a photo of this gross, like, bologna sandwich, being like, this is our food here. And that went everywhere and said, okay, the image was a mirage. So I just had some flashbacks to that, looking at this photo of the food being given to these athletes, apparently, in Beijing. And by the way, if these athletes over there in China are upset with their nutrition and upset with their accommodations and upset with their isolation and their treatment by the host country, they should thank God that they're Olympic athletes and not Uyghurs one to two million of whom are right now, as we speak, sitting in Chinese concentration camps in that country. So I guess count your blessings. And shame on the IOC for allowing this to happen. It's a joke. A very sick one at that. Hope the USA steps up its game on the medal count. We'll be watching that, but not the events themselves. 
All right, it's the Guy Benson Show. When we come back, Katie McFarland will ask her about China, but especially Russia. Foreign policy, when we come back, it is the Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We are back on the Guy Benson Show, halfway through today's program. Very pleased to have you along every day. We are now joined by Katie McFarland, former Trump Deputy National Security Advisor. She has served under multiple Republican presidents over the course of her career. She's author of the book Revolution, Trump, Washington, and We the People. Katie, welcome back. It's always a pleasure to be with you, my old friend. I want to start, KT, with a sort of narrow point as we look over at the Ukraine crisis. But I think it's not that narrow because it underscores some of the real problems that the West is having and getting on the same page. And one of the reasons why Vladimir Putin might be feeling a sort of empowered and perhaps emboldened. There was this report yesterday that the German government is really stubbornly refusing to straight up promise and pledge that they would go along with Nord Stream 2 pipeline-related sanctions if Putin moves forward with his invasion of Ukraine. This was one of the sticks, one of the big heavy sticks that had been discussed to pound away at Putin should he make this move, which would be cutting off this uh, oil pipeline that he has long prized. And now the German government is kind of waffling. They won't commit That seems like another red flag in all of this, and very good news for Putin. Meanwhile, President Biden said yesterday, sort of in this reassuring brief answer to a question, that the U.S. would have a way to make sure that that pipeline was shut down or the sanctions went through anyway, even if the Germans are being uncooperative. Untangle that for us, KT. What's going on here? It's all about oil. Um, When President Biden shut down the American energy industry, tried to shut it down, when he stopped the Keystone Pipeline, and when he allowed the Russians to have this Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which you referred to, that goes from Russia to Germany to bring natural gas. When President Biden made all these decisions, that's when the Ukraine was lost. That's when Germany had no choice. That's when Putin became emboldened. And that's why where we are today. Now, why, let me unpack that part of it. The United States a year ago was energy independent. We were exporting energy all over the world, and the price of oil was $40 a barrel. By taking away all that ability for the United States, it meant that Europe had to be completely dependent on Russian oil and natural gas. And the Russians realized it, and so they helped push the price of oil and natural gas up. It's now double what it, almost going to triple what it was a year ago. As that happens, the German economy is in big trouble without Russian oil and natural gas. They can't heat their homes, they can't run their factories, they can't drive their cars. And... As a result of that, the German president looked yesterday, Chancellor, when he met with President Biden yesterday at the White House, and Biden made his bold statement, we're going to shut down that Nord Stream 2 pipeline if the Russians put one tank across the border. And the German chancellor's kind of, please don't go there, because he can't. He cannot threaten, he cannot shut down the German economy over Ukraine. And Russia has all the cards now. Russia has the oil. Russia, by the way, is rich. Because the price of oil is doubled, as well as Iran being rich. That's what it's all about. It's all about energy, and Putin controls the energy to Europe. So this is the new chancellor in Germany, because for the first time 
it feels like forever, it's not Merkel anymore. She stepped aside. The left-wing coalition won. So it's the new man in charge, Olaf Scholz, who wouldn't commit on this front. Biden, at least, is still projecting confidence. I don't know how much of that is based on true confidence or whether he's trying to kind of manage uh, global expectations and still send a signal to Putin like, no, this is still very much a viable threat. There's got to be something. I mean, we're not bystanders, Katie. We're the most powerful country in the world. Germany might have to decide whether they want to side with us or with Russia. And I think even if it's painful, they'd want to side with us. And we could probably force their hand if we needed to, right? Yeah, but how about making it, they want, how about having them want to help us? How about saying the United States is changing course? We're going to restart the Keystone Pipeline. We're going to go for American energy independence. And Germany, let's just sit down and work out how we are going to support your energy needs. We, can, we already have liquefied natural gas terminals in Belgium. Let's build a pipeline to send that to Germany. Um, the American energy industry can do this. We just have to be allowed to do this. And the Germans, can you imagine if you're the German chancellor and you're faced with a choice between, hmm, on one hand, cheap, reliable, abundant, American natural gas, or on the other hand, Russian gas and oil to help be blackmailed by, and it's really expensive. You know, make it easy for the Germans to do the right thing would be how I would start that conversation. And then you're really taking all the teeth out of Putin. Once the oil goes down to $40 a barrel like it was a year ago, the Germans can't meet payroll. They have to have oil above $80 a barrel to pay for all the rest of their things. Because, the, you know, what are the Russians export that the world wants? Cars? Compu- Russian computers? No, they want Russian energy and natural gas, oil That's and it. natural gas. Yeah. Meanwhile, Putin was just in Beijing. He might still be there, but I saw some images of him for the Olympics, and he's very chummy with Xi Jinping. Of course they would be. They at least have this tenuous alliance against the West, against the United States right now. And with the diplomatic boycott from Western countries, including our government, Putin wanted to make a point of showing up and saying, no, I'm here. And do you think, because I know the conventional wisdom, KT, is that this is at least potentially a calm before the storm. There's no chance that Putin's going to make any of these moves during the Olympics. He wants to see how well the Russian athletes do. He wants to have the world attention on that and then perhaps move forward with this plan, with this invasion after the Olympics. Does that still seem like the likeliest timetable here? Question A and question B, I saw your tweet recently about how the Russians and the Chinese are really forming a deeper alliance when we look at Ukraine, when we look at Taiwan, when we look at this type of malign influence, those two governments are getting closer. Yeah, well, I mean, last week, Biden and, and not Biden, but um, Putin and Xi Jinping signed a joint statement. Everybody ought to read this thing. It, t- it took me about 20 minutes to read. It's really long. It's really comprehensive. And they have pledged each other into a new 21st century alliance that will have no limits on their cooperation. They will cooperate on energy. They will cooperate on trade, in dealing with the Arctic, in dealing with international organizations, in dealing with space. It, they have laid down a manifesto of how they plan to really rule the world from the 21st century. And that's the most shocking thing to me of all. It was long. It's a very well thought through. They've been, these guys have been working on this for a long time. And so I think it's, a, it's a, probably the biggest national security threat the United States has faced in our history. is a combined Russia and China. 
China with its technological ability and with its money. And in our Russia history. With its weapons and researches. In our history. I mean, maybe go back to 1776 or the Civil War, but certainly in, in since, you know, the end of this. I mean, this is much bigger than the Second World War, potentially. So and it's what not are fought. Our... And here's the thing. It's not fought with weapons. And it's just like Putin, I don't think he wants to move those darn tanks across the border because he knows it'll be really hard. He might have to fight Ukrainians. They might have civilian casualties. We won't look good. He wants to use that as intimidation. And then he'll use cyber war. He'll use cyber war, false flag operations, um, computer hack attacks, shutting down Ukraine electricity, uh, disinformation campaigns. That's the new warfare of the 21st century. And that's what the Chinese and the Russians have pledged to do to us. And what are the implications for us? The implications uh, for the 21st century? Yeah. Well, I think we're cooked. I think we're in really big trouble. Now, can we get out of this trouble? Yes. But it would take a concerted effort, and I would hope a national effort, to do a couple of things. One, turn back on American energy and use it as an export for America. It'll help the American energy industry. It'll help our national security. It'll help the you know global warming. Number two, get a national plan using and enlisting public and private resources to really stake out um, high technology, to com- commanding heights of technology. China's planning to do it, and they've got all of their government and their military and their civilian and their companies working to do it. We're kind of haphazard about it. We're not investing very much in our technology. Um, we're doing half of what we did in the Reagan administration. So number two would be maintain that technological lead. And then keep that lead. Don't you know? let the Russians and the Chinese and everybody else either buy it or hack it. And then number three, go to our alliance partners and make it easy for them to work with us. Give the Germans cheap energy. Go to the Japanese, help them rearm. Go to the Koreans, help them rearm. Go to the Australians, go to, go to India and make a, a concerted alliance of free market democracies that are willing to work together. Maybe everybody doesn't get what they want, but work together to stand up to a totalitarian 21st century. Katie McFarland, former Trump Deputy National Security Advisor. Her book is Revolution, Trump, Washington, and We the People. Complex times, complex problems, and you calling it perhaps the most significant threat that we've faced in our history is really an eye-opener, I think, for me. That made me sit up and listen even more closely. Katie, always appreciate your time, your insights. Thank you so much. You bet. Guy Benson Show returns next. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's the Guy Benson Show. We are back. Thanks for tuning in. So an update to this whole Spotify Joe Rogan saga. It sounds like they are going to keep Joe Rogan. They're standing behind him even after this compilation of him using the N-word was released, it was shorn of any context, where he was quoting other people, debating use of the word, wasn't using it as an epithet. Now you can say, there's no good reason for a white person to ever use that word. That is my approach, certainly, on that question. But this was yet another attempted hit job on Rogan to take him out. And it's interesting how they have shifted his critics sort of the outrage mob, from misinformation on COVID vaccines to the N-word, right? It's sort of like, let's try to find any cudgel, any weapon that we can wield against this guy to take him out. 
and it's the moving goalposts and the shifting tactics and rationales that I think once again underscore the underhanded tactics involved. I was on with Kennedy last night on FBN, and I said there are three things that stand out to me about the way that this cancel mob is going about their efforts. Number one, and these are not unique to this situation, they're recurring themes, but I think they are all on obvious display during this episode. Number one is jealousy and envy. I think this is particularly true of a lot of people in the legacy media who feel like Rogan cuts through a lot of the gatekeepers that they believe they are entitled to control. He commands a truly enormous audience of, what, 11 million people? Dwarfing, in most cases, their audience, not even close. They're mad about that. They're jealous. They wish they had the influence that he does, and they don't like the fact that he has these types of conversations, long-form, freewheeling, curious, with lots of different types of people, including people that they believe shouldn't really have a platform. So they backfill excuses for why they want to get rid of this guy or help take him down, and some of it is rooted in envy, professional envy. And there might be people who actually have concerns about misinformation and so on and so forth, but I think a lot of this is a lot darker than that. It's not just concern for the well-being and information of our society. And by the way, living in a free society means that conversations can take place that you might object to. And that should not be a fireable offense or a national scandal. And if you think that something is said that is wrong or problematic, you can point that out or seek to rebut it. That's different than what they're trying to do here. So number one, envy. Number two, control. And that goes to what I just said. It's not just about the ratings and the numbers and the influence. It's also this man, Rogan, doesn't operate within the strictures that they want to control. They do not have influence over his power. This is why they come after conservative media all the time. It's why they come after Fox News all the time. But that vitriol is almost a little bit different because they see, let's say, conservatives at Fox or elsewhere as sort of this ghetto. It's a large one. They have a lot of viewers. It's a problem. But that's right-wing media, and they can put us in a little box. And they try to do it and kind of make it seem like we're ostracized from polite, real culture. That's their goal, and conservatives are frequently trying to break out of that mold and sort of go up against that self-enforced monopoly of the mainstream so-called cultural tastemakers who are very much in their own thick bubble. What bothers them so much about Rogan, I think, and I'm not a fan of him. Like, I don't listen to him. I'm not someone who's a big Rogan guy. It's the principle here. It's the outrage mob. I mean, I wrote End of Discussion in 2015 with Mary Catherine Hamm about exactly this type of phenomenon. So, of course, I'm going to wade into this fight because it's something that I care about on principle. He is unique and different. He's credible with his audience. He's very well-liked. He seems like an interesting, nice dude who actually is intellectually curious. He likes having these conversations. He's not there just to set someone up and dunk on them. And because he doesn't fit into a little basket that they can alienate or put off to the side 
and write off. And because he has such a big audience, that is a threat to their power, to their control. And they're control freaks. And then finally, number three, bad faith. So much of this is bad faith. Hence the lack of context. Hence the ever-changing justifications of what they're really mad about. And their efforts to topple Joe Rogan and, and protest the various advertisers and put pressure on Spotify. I know they've now got, what, a $100 million pledge to some equity effort. That's their attempt to placate the mob. The mob is never placated, I would note. But on that front, I found this pretty satisfying. Dave Portnoy from Barstool, he had this online video exchange with these three brothers who have a group that they call Midas Touch. It's a dark money, left-wing Dem super PAC, and they love their dark money as long as it's theirs over on the left. And they've been active gladiators in this cancel Joe Rogan movement. And Portnoy confronted them. He's like, I have proof, someone has given me proof that one of you three brothers used the N-word in a text message conversation. And one of the brothers accused Portnoy of lying. One of the other brothers started to look awfully nervous on screen. And Portnoy's like, hey, does someone here have a fiancé named Lexi? Then Mr. Nervous up in the upper left corner looked really nervous because it was him. And it looks like there is proof out there that with some context, we don't know what that context is. Portnoy's whole point was it matters what context is. He had used this guy, the N-word, when they've been arguing that Rogan needs to be canceled for quoting the N-word. And I think one of the enduring truths about the cancel mob, the angry mob, is that almost none of them could ever withstand the type of scrutiny that they themselves inflict on others. And Portnoy did a, I think, public service by illustrating that in real time with these people. Meanwhile, Neil Young, I guess, is taking his latest 15 minutes of fame, encouraging Spotify workers to quit because it's soul-destroying at Spotify. What is he even talking about? Is he going to pay for their bills? People probably love working at Spotify, and they don't get all spun up about these culture war conflicts. Neil Young also urging his followers not to bank with certain banks for various reasons. He sounds like a real fun guy, doesn't he? Sounds like an exhausting person to be a fan of. No, thank you. All right, final hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up. Janice Dean will be here next. o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the Happy Hour on the Guy Benson Show on this Tuesday... I'm Guy Benson. Thanks for tuning in. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weeknight. And if you miss the live broadcast, any part of it for any reason, we have a podcast for that. It is free. It is on demand every day when the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. But all the ways to listen at GuyBensonShow.com. You can also follow us on social at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Happy Hour sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is so good. 
I might have one or two when I'm down in Georgia later in the week, and we will talk about that coming up here at the end of the show. Long Drink is so good. It's expanding. Check it out. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. TheLongDrink.com. I'll be on special report tonight. Just a quick programming note. Fox News Channel, 6 p.m. hour, usually toward the back end of the hour. I'll be part of the panel with Brett and company, so I will see you there this evening. Joining us now is our friend and colleague, Janice Dean, senior meteorologist at Fox News, New York Times best-selling author, most recently, of Make Your Own Sunshine, inspiring stories of people who find light in dark times. Janice, it's great to have you back. Hello. Oh, it's good to hear your voice, Guy. Likewise. And I want to start with this question on the weather and a tradition that I find very, very odd. We talked about it on the show, as a matter of fact, and we got a couple little responses, particularly from listeners in western Pennsylvania. I do not understand the appeal or the point of Groundhog Day, but I saw that you were there in full Groundhog regalia, so maybe you can set me straight on this. Listen, I love it. But, you know, I love all events that deal with animals like groundhogs and horses at the Kentucky Derby and the dog show. So that's just me. I enjoy uh, animal festivals. Um, but the groundhog is an important event, especially when it comes to weather. Now, I will admit fully that Punxsutawney Phil's prognostications are worse than a coin toss. But yeah, he's kind about- of like a CNN pundit. <laughs> Depending on who you're talking about, I suppose. Yeah. But um, it's an event. It's one of the U.S.'s oldest gatherings, you know, since the 1800s to celebrate this groundhog that comes out of his burrow every single year and decides whether or not we're going to have six more weeks of winter or an early spring. And he predicted six more weeks of winter, which, by the way, I also predicted just the fact that we had a major winter storm that was happening on February 2nd. So I had to go with, you know, my own forecasting knowledge that was happening at the time. But see, that was my concern. I'm like, why would a meteorologist in particular go and participate in this event where you're sort of, in some ways, outsourcing your real job to a rodent? Well, I haven't really thought of it that way. I went more for the celebration because it is a bucket list thing. And it became very popular with the Groundhog Day movie with Bill Murray, which is fabulous. I mean, I've probably seen it 20 times. And whenever it's on on the TV, I won't turn the channel. It's that good. So, and it is that kind of folksy atmosphere where everyone gathers together at Gobbler's Knob to see this moment at 7.24 in the morning. You get there early at 3 a.m., you party hard, and then once it's over, people just leave. But this is a huge event for Punxsutawney. I mean, they basically get all of their revenue from that week of Groundhog Day. All right, so it's good for the local community, I guess. Gobbler's Knob sounds like a made-up thing, but you know what? If it gives people, if it sparks joy, go for it. On the actual weather front, before we move on to politics, and New York politics in particular, Janice, based on that prediction, that forecast from you, are we sort of done 
Do you think with the huge snowstorms, I know it's still early February, we've gotten hit, especially on the East Coast or the eastern part of the country, pretty hard a few times already. Are we on the downslope, so to speak, or might we go through a few more rounds of this? I think we're going to go through a few more rounds. Actually, late next week, it looks like we're going to have another potential big winter storm. So we're not done yet, my friend. We'll get a little taste of spring this week for a lot of the country. But listen, you know what? Uh, We still have a few more weeks to go. So, Janice, I mentioned just in a joking way CNN just a moment ago. I have a few friends over there. There's some good people over there. And then there's uh, the clown show. And I try to distinguish between those groups. But the clown show is pretty big. And you've seen a lot of them on the air and off the air mourning the loss of their now departed, by which I mean resigned, leader, uh, the president, former president of CNN, Jeff Zucker, who was taken down as part of this blast radius, as people keep describing it, of the Cuomo scandal. It's amazing how many people, not just people named Cuomo, others who have been taken down or lost their jobs or thrown into controversy based on their connections to this toxic family and this toxic man in particular, the former governor of New York. I just want to get your overall thoughts on that before we get to what Andrew Cuomo himself is now saying. Well, everyone is responsible for their own behavior, right? I don't think this is necessarily a domino effect. I think the one thing they all have in common is that they are associated with Andrew Cuomo, but the reason they have gotten fired or demoted or have resigned is because of their own behavior, okay? So that has just come to light in the in terms of what's happened with Jeff Zucker. Uh, I think there's more to the story that we haven't heard yet. Uh, not only his inappropriate relationship with this woman, which, by the way, you know what? I'm not going to comment on the affair, but I am going to comment that this guy helped prop Andrew Cuomo up and made him this celebrity oh, that was so him. hard to take down. Of course they did. And that's the problem here is that when you talk about ethics, and having Chris Cuomo interview his brother for a jokey hour of CNN constantly as thousands are dying, including my in-laws, you know, that's unethical. And it was supported at the levels of the president of CNN. So he deserves to go. He deserves to be fired without, you know, without payment. I actually think the woman involved, his cohort second in command, Allison Gallist should be fired as well. Because yeah, I don't know how he, she survives. Because it was her he connection, was, right? It was her connection back to Cuomo, her yes. former boss that really fostered all of this. And Janice, I was thinking of you as I was reading some of these stories. Look, there's the boss-subordinate relationship situation that wasn't reported to HR. They're together in multiple ways and making decisions about other people's jobs and their careers and their lives in a lot of ways. I think that there's an ethical issue there to begin with but if you set aside that the ethics the morals there's an affair going on all of that here you had the very top leaders not some opinion host although they kind of claim that they don't have opinion hosts at cnn which is hilarious but not an opinion host who was helping out cuomo or advising cuomo although his brother i think would qualify as that and his brother got fired for doing that these were the actual executives of the news channel that were advising, reportedly, the governor of New York on how to make his TV appearances in those COVID press conferences more compelling, more pugnacious vis-a-vis Trump, 
to help him, to help their ratings. It was sort of one big happy family behind the scenes. And it just surprised me on several levels to see all along we thought that CNN Brass had simply allowed or indulged the Cuomo Brothers show to go forward back in the early days because it was kind of good for ratings and everyone feel good. So they kind of said, all right, fine. Uh, we'll kind of look the other way. Now we know they were the ones actually choreographing it and booking the governor. Yeah, it's sickening. And can I tell you, Guy, I have to tell you, today I saw a snippet from The View, and I was floored to see all of the ladies except for Sonny now throwing governor, former Governor Andrew Cuomo under the bus and Chris Cuomo. I, I was floored today to see Anna Navarro say she would never vote for Andrew Cuomo again. Uh, she feels really hurt by what Chris Cuomo did. Uh, and they were talking about nursing homes, the fact that he put COVID positive patients into nursing homes and he covered it up. They talk about the fact that he had a $5.2 million book deal. In the oh, middle they of talked the about the COVID deaths and the cover up. Yes. See, that's yes, they did, guys. Even Benson. at the. At the view. I mean, that that's pretty yes. surprising because what has also bothered me, and I was just commenting on this the other day, what has bothered me most, I think, about all of the Cuomo-related fallout is that they give very little attention and short shrift to the COVID manipulations, the data being hidden, the thousands of undercounted seniors dying after being forced back into those death traps it's sort of like an afterthought or maybe a little mm -hmm. footnote compared to the sexual harassment which is what they decided they could get him on because i think they were just too invested in him on the other thing but if that worm is turning a little bit i guess that's yes. good news except and here comes the shamelessness again of this man he's out there giving interviews talking about how he regrets resigning i think he feels like he shouldn't have resigned that he was shivved and was treated unfairly and now i guess he is telling various reporters that he is actively mulling a comeback another run for elective office i don't think that goes anywhere you never know but the total lack of remorse and shame and contrition from this guy is extraordinary. I mean, it's next level. And as I saw you point out on Twitter in this interview that he gave talking about another run, they kind of just buried the whole COVID issue. Mm -hmm. I think this is, again, going to be his downfall. You know, the fact that he can't stand not being in the spotlight and giving this interview, I thought the reporter that got him on the phone just did a terrible job because she kind of let him do his thing and say that he regretted resigning, but she didn't get him on the real stuff. So yes, the sexual harassment, obviously an issue, 11 women, women coming forward talking about his abusive, harassing behavior, um, but she never asked about the nursing homes, which is one of the reasons why I became so vocal is because the media never pressed him on the stuff that actually could be criminal. The fact that he 
put infected patients into nursing homes by the thousands and covered up the numbers to sell his $5.1 million book. There are many investigations still ongoing, and they never asked him that question. They let him say, oh, of course I'm thinking about maybe running again, and of course I shouldn't have resigned. But I will tell you, seeing the ladies on The View today, and that was the topic of discussion, whether or not he should come back and try a comeback. And the reason why it was so important, Guy, is that maybe people are starting to finally see who this guy is and the fact that he cannot stand not being in the spotlight and not being in power to abuse that against other people. Well, look, that show, a hallmark of that show, is lazy, underinformed hot takes. And so if his malfeasance has penetrated that deeply that even they get it, it's not a great sign mm-hmm. for him. But it's a good sign for you because you've been out there fighting this fight for month after month after month, and we bring you back occasionally just to check in. And as soon as I saw this headline about Cuomo mulling or considering another run, weighing whether to come back, I was like, let's get Janice on the bat phone immediately. Well, I always appreciate that from the very beginning, but I think you're right. I think the fact that he is coming up and the headlines are, will he make a comeback? I think people are starting to finally see him who he really is. Go for it, buddy. Let's see how that turns out. Janice Dean, (laughs) senior meteorologist at Fox News, New York Times bestselling author. Always appreciate your time. Let's talk again soon. Absolutely, my friend. Take care. Janice Dean on the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, which returns after this short break. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Happy Hour on the Guy Benson Show. If you're listening to the live broadcast, you recognize that song, perhaps, Rolling in the Deep by Adele. It brings us back and calls us back to a story that we covered recently on the show about the Vegas residency for Adele that has sort of gone down the tube. She missed the deadline for opening night. She canceled like the day before in tears saying, we don't have it together. I don't want to put a subpar product on stage. And a lot of people were furious having spent huge sums of money to get there and be at the opening show and fly and have accommodations and all of those expenses for her super fans down the tubes. And we debated it here amongst ourselves, and we agreed it was not a good look for Adele. And I like her. I think she's very talented. But that was not a great episode, and I guess it's ongoing. And we debated a few different options about what she could have done differently, so on and so forth. Well, here's a creative solution, and it is reported by TMZ, and their headline is, Hello, it's not me. They are offering free tickets to people who had Adele residency tickets to a performance in Vegas of impersonators. It's called Legends in Concert. The longest running and most awarded show in Vegas, according to TMZ, now has this new idea where people can come and trade in their tickets, or I guess show their tickets for free access to this impersonator event. TMZ notes for now, it's the closest you'll get to Adele. So there's a spin-off production called Legendary Divas, and it's offering free tickets to Adele fans who purchase tickets to the singer's 
weekends with Adele residency. Divas is performed nightly at the Tropicana, and lookalike Janae Longo belts out some of Adele's hits. She's got the look down, she's got a good voice, although Adele's voice is pretty special and unique. But there's other tributes within this performance as well. Someone does Celine Dion, someone does Lady Gaga, someone does Cher, and the whole thing is emceed by a Joan Rivers stand-in, which is also hilarious. I loved Joan Rivers. So I guess you could kind of go and have this as your consolation prize for free. I guess you'll get at some point reimbursed by Adele, or you'll get to go to a future concert, I would assume, or else there would probably be lawsuits flying. But in the meantime, you show up to this thing, and you just kind of squint a little bit and say, yeah, you know, close enough, close enough for now. Plus, you get these other divas over the course of the performance. Actually, one of my favorite videos ever of Adele herself was when she entered an Adele look-alike and sing-alike contest. There was a bunch of people competing to do the best impression of Adele. She put on a disguise and showed up herself. And when she finally started singing, she went last. All the other women went crazy because they realized who it was. Again, I'm not a hater at all, but not a great moment for Adele right now and sort of a creative solution out there in Vegas. Always entrepreneurial out in Vegas. The Guy Benson Show continues after this break. Don't go anywhere. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Guy Benson Show Happy Hour here. Thanks for joining us. Earlier today in the program, we welcomed back Congressman Kevin Brady, Texas, the leading Republican on the House Ways and Means Committee. We had a lot to discuss, as we always do. Here's part of that conversation with Texas Congressman Kevin Brady. Is he sort of missing, or I can't admit, maybe I should say, the bigger picture that to the extent that the economy is growing and jobs are being added to this economy, it is overwhelmingly red states and Republican governors and Republican-led states that are driving that growth. That's what the, the data actually shows. He spends a lot of his time and energy attacking guys like your governor, for example, Greg Abbott, when, as I've said before on this show, the data suggests he should be thanking Republican governors, would be in a lot worse shape if not for the uh, you know, growing and increasingly recovered economies in red states. Yeah, there's no question about it. Uh, Republican governors, you know, who opened up early, who ended those very lavish unemployment benefits early, have seen the strongest job growth, seen the lowest unemployment. And frankly, they're the reasons why the numbers have started to bounce back. But one thing I point out is that Sort of, sort of the headline number Friday was a, a bit of a shocker. I think most people thought, okay, now that President Biden's barriers to work, like the child tax credit that, that uh, doesn't uh, require you to work anymore, that people are beginning to reconnect to their jobs, which I think is a, a good thing. But in digging through the data since, since uh, Friday, experts have warned that when you remove population revisions, which is what the Labor Department does. They just add the new census data at the beginning of every year. So it rejiggers everything in the statistics. But if you actually remove those, which are just technical changes, job growth, it turns out, did actually fall by 272,000 jobs. And the number of unemployed rose 
The same thing for the percentage of Americans in the workforce. If you take out just that once a year quirk, turns out, you know, it was flat as well. And so... Huh. So with that, let me ask you that, because you just explained that technicality. And there might be some people saying, okay, here's here's this Republican congressman going on this conservative show to poo-poo a huge jobs report that the Democratic president was excited about. And he's trying to explain it away like, oh, it's not really what it seems. That sounds a little conspiratorial. If what you're (laughs) saying is right, would that maybe show up in the February Jobs no, report? It, it, it actually shows up in the January one. And so fair question happens every year and it's sort of it's just a it's just a um quirk of the fact that we continue to grow as a nation and so in January of each year sort of all the denominators and denominators sort of change a bit because we well, have I guess I guess America. my question, Congressman, and I could have phrased it better was would that once a year January phenomenon wear off and would we have a better picture if it is indeed bleaker? Would that bleaker picture show up in the February jobs report? So sort of, it's sort of like apples to apples, but every new year is a different set of apples. And so you can't compare it exactly. But here's what we know for certain. There are a whole lot of red flags facing this economy, including raging inflation. The president still, his, his uh, jobs deficit which is the gap between what he promised and delivered is rose again to 1.2 million jobs short. And as you know, we have a big, huge worker shortage that's really driving up inflation and keeping the economy held back. And so, look, you, you always you want a stronger economy. We're all rooting for it. Uh, I don't think that that one month number, frankly, was what we needed to do that, and uh, I still think we've got these looming tax increases still uh, hanging over the heads of small businesses and main street job creators. That's a worry as well. There's this competitiveness bill, meanwhile, that Democrats are now pushing. I've seen a number of Republican leaders saying that it's a non-starter for various reasons. I have not followed that controversy closely, so please educate me and my audience, what is the bill proposed, and what are they what are they trying to get passed, so, and what are some of the objections to it? Yeah, so what, what Democrats are doing is proposing to spend about a $300 billion more, uh, supposedly to compete with China. But when you dig deeper into it, it is much like the other socialist programs. A lot of the labor union uh, giveaways, uh, a bunch of trade barriers, frankly, that make it hard for us to compete and as I point out, look, at the, the end of the day, you know, when you're confronting China, so the key questions are, does this hold China accountable for their predatory trade practices? No, it doesn't. Does it build off of President Trump's phase one agreement that began to change the behavior of uh, China as far as stealing our intellectual property and, uh, and technologies? No. And then does it really uh, confront China's aggressiveness on trade agreements around the world, which they are super aggressive right now? And the answer is no. In fact, the Biden administration's sitting on the sidelines while China and Japan and Russia and others are divvying up the world's customers for their farmers and manufacturers and workers. So I think it um, – and the other thing, too, I, I really worry it gives government more control. My full interview with Kevin Brady, Texas Republican congressman, available online, GuyBensonShow.com, also part of the free podcast, the entire show, every day, on demand, for free. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, 
or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, a pretty fun event in the works down in Georgia, Hotlanta. Later this week, we will tell you about it. And Christine has some spinoff ideas. We talked about spinoffs in Vegas earlier in the hour. Well, how about a bar crawl with Cookie and company? Uh, we'll explain all of it when we return. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch Tuesday edition, Guy Benson Show. See you on special report this evening with Brett Baer. Molly Hemingway also on that panel. I think Jeff Mason joining. Right around 640 Eastern, Fox News Channel. GuyBensonShow.com, our website here. Podcast is always free. So I've referenced this once or twice and teased it earlier as well. Not today, but tomorrow after the show, which reminds me, I need to pack. I need to go and repack, maybe do some laundry here. But tomorrow after the show, I am heading to the airport, flying down to Atlanta, and I'll be spending the next few days in Atlanta doing the show from the studios of our great affiliate down there from 3 to 6 Eastern Extra, which has been growing by leaps and bounds, and I am honored to be a part of the team there. It's our fantastic affiliate in that huge city, and... Part of the appeal, part of the reason I'm going down there is not just to spend time with our friends and see them all and do the show from the studio and so forth. We are also doing an event for Extra on Thursday night. And they've called it, this is very creative, this was their idea, Guys Night Out. And it's going to be some of the folks who work at the station and some of the advertisers and sponsors and then some listeners as well are going to come to this dinner at... An acclaimed restaurant with, I guess, a a chef who is popular down in Atlanta who will be cooking for all of us. And we'll just have an event with some remarks and just hanging out and chatting. And I'm told the food and drink will be outstanding. And I even heard from Matt, who's the programming director down there, that they might want me to go a little bit early and chat with the chef and maybe even do, like, some sort of a video of cooking I'm not a good cook by any stretch, but I love cooking shows. And so it's kind of a dream come true if he can just have me doing easy tasks. That's all I'm really capable of. So I don't know exactly what they have in mind for that, but I'm just going to roll with it. Can't wait to meet some of you guys down in Atlanta and some of our great advertisers on that affiliate down there. So it's going to be fun. The reason I mention it not just because I'm looking forward to it and you'll be hearing the broadcast from the Extra Studios Thursday and Friday of this week, is because we were talking it through on our phone call today, planning for the show, and I was detecting perhaps a little bit of, I don't know, frustration from producer Christine that she is not invited to participate in these festivities. Although I would clarify, she's invited, I just don't think... In terms of travel right now and budgets and everything, they were going to send the producer with me down to Atlanta. So she is now parlaying and sort of channeling this frustration into a brainstorming session about future events. She was saying, hey, maybe we can have this idea of the guys' night out model and pitch it to other affiliates at our other stations around the country. Like, hey, guy can come in and visit the station, visit 
the market, and do an event. I'm always down for this kind of stuff. So if you're a programming director out there, you know, get in touch with our team. We'd love to maybe set something up, and I'll let you know how it goes in Atlanta, sort of the pilot program, and they seem to have this thing locked down. It's really well-organized so far. It seems like a really fun schedule. But Christine was saying maybe we could take the guys' night out concept and kind of tweak it a little bit. And I know this will come as a shock to all of you. She wants to make it a little bit more cookie-centric, a little bit more about her. Because we know that some of you listen to this show for me, and they do conveniently put my name on the show. But Christine is certainly convinced that some large percentage, if not a majority of this audience, ultimately is here for her. And so if we were to do, Christine, some version of Guys Night Out around the country with different stations, you are proposing some sort of a bar crawl with like trolleys and stuff. Can you explain this? Well, it it would be called the cookie crawl. And what I'm thinking is right after your guys' night out, because yours will probably be some, like, tasteful dinner, blah, 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 (laughs) uh, I will come to the restaurant where that event is in a bus. I don't know if I – I don't think I'd drive the bus. That probably wouldn't be safe or smart. But we would hire a bus, like a party bus. Party bus. That way. And I will be, like, the director of the rest of the night, and we do a cookie crawl, which is basically a bar crawl around town hosted by yours truly. And then maybe we'll get you to make an appearance at one of the bars. You know, obviously you have other things to do. Can't be just drinking with us all night. Um, I feel confident that I could do that and still produce the next day. So just think about it. The program directors out there, think about it, too. My fee is very, very low. I mean, meaning none. There's nothing. I I just won't charge. (laughs) I'm envisioning... It's not a bad idea. I'm envisioning some sort of a classy event at a nice restaurant with an acclaimed or prominent chef from the area and good wine, and we're having conversation, and people from the audience and listeners are there asking really sophisticated questions, and I'm doing my best to field the questions, then all of a sudden, you just start hearing basically a truck horn from outside, where you play the Venga bus song, just blasting from speakers, and you're honking the bus horn, and you basically come busting into the room like the Kool-Aid man, and you're like, it's time to drink. Mama's juice is served. And everyone immediately is totally forgets about me, is, is bored about the political talk, and they just rush out to the bus with you, and you just hit all the hot spots for the ensuing three, four hours, depending on you know what the local ordinances are. And then you know you end up sloshing back to the hotel at some point, and then the next day, we have our normal morning phone call, and you'll be fine. Is, does this all sound about right? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much an, uh, my perfect idea, my idea of a perfect evening. Um, and think about it this way. The bus, like, when you think of the bus pulling up, think about, like, a school bus that was painted. And, like, we, like, took out some of the seats, put some lights in, you know, like, think about a... But like colored, like LED lights, would there be booze available on the bus? 
So I would have to check each town to see how that goes. I'm not uh-huh. really sure. I don't want to say for now, but um, I don't know if you've ever been to a room. Yeah, you don't want this. You don't want to make some sort of uh, like a verbal contract, Christine. Like people are taking this seriously. You don't want to overpromise. I don't want to overpromise, but yeah, what I could say is everybody will get some sort of flask. We could work around it that way. Mm. Just saying. Just saying. What would the role be for Quiet Wyatt? Would he be the chaperone? Would he be the adult? You don't think he could drive the bus? I think I think it might be a little big for him. You know, I, I think uh, we want a trained bus driver, I would say. Just for liability okay. purposes, I'm picturing him in a sweater vest with a clipboard and making sure that everyone remains on time and that we aren't leaving stragglers behind. And he's taking attendance and being very diligent. Even in as that gets Fox News gear, it gets harder and harder as the night goes on to herd these cats, <laughs> particularly Cookie. Yeah, I mean, I've done this before. I I don't know if you've ever been to Aruba, but they have something called the Cuckoo Canoe. And it pulls I, up I, Can I just, just hold, hold, hold up there for a second? I have been to Aruba, but you'll be shocked to learn that when I was there, I did not avail myself of the cuckoo canoe <laughs> You missed out. Boy, did you miss out. They pull up in a tricked-out bus, like the windows are gone. The lady, there's the bus driver, and then the, like, the coordinator, who would be me. She yeah. comes out. The hype you know, woman. Gives you a shot. Yes. She comes out, gives you a shot. They're blasting Bon Jovi. They give you maracas. I had a tambourine. And then you just go that bar That sounds bar. like cultural appropriation, but go ahead. It is so much fun. And we can just somehow, we'll, we'll class it up a little bit. Listen, don't be worried. You know, I know this is your name. Maybe we could be like bus. bumping. We could be bumping to the, the full studio version of Woke Tales, the song. Uh, oh, yes. I mean, all of our songs could be our bumper music songs. Like, we will definitely make some strong ties into this. Now, what will Dan be doing during the bus, the cookie crawl? Well, I think he probably has to be in New York, you know, making sure that the show goes on the air, engineering. Yeah. All that's, right. That's Dan. the downside. Although the, the upside of that for him, he's missing out on the fun. Yes, but he's also missing out on any potential arrests that occur as a result of this nonsense over the course of a wild evening orchestrated by Cookie. So I think net-net, it's probably a win for him. Do you just have this, do you have this idea in your head that every time I go out, I get arrested? I don't think not, I'd have a job. No, no, I, I'm not saying every time. I'm just saying that there's probably some close shaves and some run-ins, and if you were in charge of a large group of people on a party bus, I feel like ultimately you'd be like, wait, are those blue lights in the rearview mirror? And the party would come to an end real fast. And the only person who wouldn't get arrested is Quiet Wyatt. I'm really selling this whole uh, cookie crawl, aren't yeah, I? Yeah, I'm trying to actually sell this for a real idea, <laughs> and I, you are just taking it down, you know. Well, how about the, this? Let's just see how Guy's Night Out goes first in Atlanta. It's Thursday. I can't wait. I will report back, of course. And then if we want to develop similar ideas along the lines of what you're proposing or even close that's another conversation for another day. And by the way, I think that part of the reason that we should end the conversation now is because we are also out of time, as it turns out. So it just sort of aligns. 
back here tomorrow doing the show from D.C., then jetting off to Atlanta. Can't wait. See you on Special Report coming up next hour on Fox News Channel. Back here on the radio, same time, same place tomorrow. Have a great night. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.